Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn in them to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, as we once again focus our attention on the life and ministry of John the Baptist, we are going to be spending our time in verses 10 through 14, as really we look at the overall accounting of Luke's historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, as he desires to ensure that we know the exact truth about all that we have been taught, all that we have heard as a people. So I want to begin this morning by reading for us the first 20 verses of chapter 3, just to once again set our minds in the context of where Luke is since we have been some time from this text. Beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Tronconitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God." He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham." And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he answered them and said, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. Some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages." Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand and thoroughly and to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. 
When Herod the Tetrarch was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, and on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he added this also to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Let's ask God to bless our time this morning. Father, we thank you that we can be here again, opening your word, hearing your word. You have told us and commanded us to publicly read the Word. We want to do that. We have done that. Lord, attend to our study time that we might glean from it exactly what you would have for us this morning by the power of your Spirit as we are engaged in it in mind and body. May your Spirit impress upon us all that we must learn and apply in our lives this day. All to your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Luke has certainly and faithfully given us the exact record of John the Baptist's ministry, even though it is a short account, at least by lifespan and ministry of John. John certainly had a short ministry, and yet we don't get much of the details about it in any of the Gospels. Luke's Gospel gives us the most. And through it all, we understand from Luke's account that John is, in fact, a true prophet of God. We, we looked at it earlier, and we understand why we can say that. One is because the Word of God came to him. Verse 2 tells us that even throughout the whole historical pinpointing of the timing of John's ministry through all the details that you find in verse 1 and even in the first part of verse 2, the real drive in that whole section is just that. The Word of God came to John. John is a prophet who received from God direct revelation about Jesus Christ and about his ministry, and therefore he did what a true prophet does, whether it's a prophet with a big P, i.e. the prophet who'd received direct revelation from God, or little p prophets, i.e. those who proclaim the Word of God, they go and do just that. They proclaim the Word of God. Verse 3 tells us that is exactly what John did. He came into all the district around the Jordan preaching. He was a preacher, a proclaimer, a a keruso is the word in the original language. He he spoke the word of God. He he told people exactly what God had shown him and told him. And his preaching was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is important for us to understand, particularly as we look at our text this morning. John's message is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just those few words encapsulate for us then the entirety of the gospel in a nutshell. The forgiveness of sins through repentance. Repentance and forgiveness are necessities that tell us our need. We, as a people, have a need. Repentance and forgiveness tell us that we are desperate for rescue, that we are lost in our sin. They tell us of God's mercy toward the lost. 
Repentance and forgiveness tell us that our sin condition can be, in fact, remedied. That we are not forever and eternally stuck in this position if we would simply repent that our sin can be removed. But, for it to be removed, we need to trust what God has said. We need to trust that the way of salvation is exactly how God said it, because this is God's message. This is God's word. This is God's good news. It is God's gospel. In fact, this is, as chapter 3, verse 6 states it from the prophet Isaiah, this is the salvation of God. This is the salvation of God. It is a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is here that we see that repentance involves more than just some sense of penance. Repentance is more than just this idea of penance. It is more than words that express some kind of sorrow. Repentance is more than just simply saying, I'm sorry. Those are nice words. Those are, those are words that are used very often, especially in our culture, from family to family and person to person. At times we might hear those words and we might even say those words. But actual repentance produces a fruit in the life of the one who is truly repentant. That is simply to say that repentance without fruit is not repentance at all. Let me say that again. Repentance without fruit is not repentance at all. Fruitless repentance is only remorse. Fruitless repentance is simply remorse, and remorse will bring guilt, that is for sure, but it will not bring salvation. Remorse will not bring the forgiveness of sins. In other words, in the context of John's ministry, in fact, in the context of every godly ministry, saying that you believe or or saying through some religious activity that you are saved is is really just the beginning. It's, it's just the initial stage. But if there's no spiritual fruit produced in the life of the person going through that, or saying they believe, or even doing some religious activity, then it is simply words. It is simply activity. It is not salvation. Let me, let me just repeat that again so that we are clear. Unless there is fruit produced, there is no surety, and there can be no confidence that actual repentance has taken place in the heart of a sinner. Unless there is fruit, there can be no surety, and there certainly can be no confidence that actual repentance has taken place in the heart of a sinner. Beloved, that is John's message to the people that he was speaking to. Why? Because that's God's message. This is God's word to John. 
This is John's word of God to us. Where there is true repentance, there is the forgiveness of sins. And in the heart where forgiveness has taken place, there is the outworking of spiritual fruit in the life of the repentant sinner. Notice what Luke says about John's message to the people, verses 8 and 9. He says, well, verse 7, He began to say to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by Him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That was an interesting statement when we looked at it because John is simply saying, listen, if you think you're okay by your righteous deeds, then why in the world have you come out to Me? In other words, if you think you're okay to not be under the wrath of God by your religious efforts, then why in the world would you flee to come to Me? Why in the world would you need to add another religious activity if you were securing your activities already? So who told you who told you to flee from the wrath to come? You you think you're secure. Therefore, verse 8, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, our heritage is good enough. That's the implication. Because God is able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. And also, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. In other words, judgment is imminent. Judgment is there. Don't think that you can escape that by your activity or by your heritage or by any other kind of religious thing that you might do. Judgment is right there, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's how close you are to judgment. He's speaking words not unlike Jonathan Edwards' words about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Listen, you are in the hands of an angry God, and you cannot escape by your own efforts. That's what John is saying. You need to have fruit that is born out of repentance. And I want to just show us this in a couple of places just before we move on. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We'll just go through a few of these. Notice what Isaiah says. The words of God, right? God had had enough with Israel. Verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not specifically necessarily talking to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They had already been destroyed back in Genesis. We know that, but he's saying your attitude's just like that. You want nothing to do with God. You think you can rule your own life, so listen up. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams, the fat-fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this of you, this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Says, listen, you're coming to me for worship. You want to have a true worship with me, and yet you come with a heart filled like Sodom and Gomorrah's heart. You're filled with iniquity. Who, who requires that of you? I'll have nothing to do with that. I can't endure that. 
I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to pray, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I'm not going to listen to them. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The implication is they were doing none of that. It was all about self. Verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If, if you consent and obey, refuse and rebel. But if you do that, if you refuse, if you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. God has spoken. That says, listen, turn from your iniquity, turn from your sinfulness, turn your back on that, not on me. Then you'll be restored. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Just like the prophet Isaiah, verse 24, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, will he live, God asks? All of his righteous deeds which he has done, won't they, will they be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed for them? He will die. And yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. And again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Why? Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore... I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from your transgression so that the iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit for you. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God's saying, listen, turn from your iniquity. Turn from your wickedness. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Why will you choose to die? Go over to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, Paul 
the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys. Now he's before been arrested. He's now in Rome. He's before Agrippa. Paul is giving his testimony about why he's doing what he's doing. Paul says in verse 12, While thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. And those who were journeying with me, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But arise, stand on your feet, because this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the domain of Satan to God in order that they might receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout the whole region of Judea, and even the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. <clears throat> Once again, just like the Old Testament, you cannot have repentance without fruit. There is no genuine repentance without fruit. It's an impossibility. It is not a biblical concept. This is all over the Scriptures. I'll just give you one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Apostle Paul dealing with marriage. Beginning in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. But to marry and give in but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest I say to the Lord that if any brother has his wife as an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. The Apostle Paul dealing with this very intimate relationship of marriage, speaking to how a believer deals with even an unbeliever in their own heart, even within that context by which one gets saved, the other does not get saved, they are in this marriage, and how repentance and how that looks by way of their heart before God and living it out. This is fruit of repentance. That's what you see there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I can't help it, but there's one more. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews talking about 
turning away from the things of God, just as those in the Old Testament had done. Verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age have come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The writer of Hebrews clearly is stating there that there was no real repentance. If you apostate and turn from God, once having said you believe in God, there's not, it's not true repentance. You were never really saved. Why? Because the ground that drinks up the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it's also tilled receives a blessing from God. He's using the agricultural illustration that the ground drinks the rain and produces fruit. So does the life who receives the Spirit. Through repentance it produces fruits. An impossibility to not. If it yields thorns and thistles, verse 8, it's worthless. Close to being cursed ends up being burned. Why do I bring all those verses up? Just simply to show us that fruit of repentance is all over the place in the Scriptures. It's all over the place. So let us never get the idea that we can do something or that through some religious exercise, somehow we can become forgiven. We can never earn the forgiveness we need cannot happen. And some of those who were listening to John as he was preaching understood what he was saying. And so in verses 10 through 14, there are three specific groups that come and ask John for clarification about what this true repentance, what this fruit of repentance might look like in the context of their life. One group is just the crowd in general, it's just those who had come out, this larger group crowd, not that they were in one sense separate from the other two groups, but it gets a little more specific in the other two groups, right? One's the crowd in general, one is the tax collectors, the other is the soldiers. So each group asks for clarity. Clarity on how repentance, the fruit of repentance, shows itself in their lives. Let's just read this one more time so we have it in our minds. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, verse 10, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. That's a simple question. What shall we do? What is it we do? That's the question asked by each group. And they are asking John because he is recognized as the teacher and he is the one giving the message who is giving it from God. And so what we need to understand here from this text is the effect. The effect that is produced in the life of those who are granted repentance by faith. There is always 
and effect. There is always fruit. So let's begin to just look at these one by one. We want to understand the nature of repentance, the effect of true repentance in the life of a believer. And of course, this isn't going to tell us the exhaustive ways in which it comes out, but I do believe it it covers a grand scope of the nature of the fruit of repentance, particularly by way of attitude. We might even call this first action giving freely. Giving freely. The nature of true repentance is seen through the fruit of giving. It is seen through the fruit of giving. The nature of true repentance is seen through giving freely in verses 10 and 11. They were saying, what shall we do? Verse 10, and he would answer and say to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none and let him who has food do likewise. So this is the crowds. This is the multitudes who have followed the religious leaders out to John. It is the people in general. In other words, there's nothing special here that distinguishes them like the special titles that are distinguishing the other two groups. They ask the same question, what shall we then do you have told us go bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance okay now tell us what is it that looks like we know it's not a question that's attempting to gain some kind of righteousness before God by way of action or to gain repentance because John has already made that clear that true repentance cannot be gained by doing All we would be able to say, according to these questions, is how ignorant are these people? Did they have their ears filled with wax? They did not hear what John said. It was clear that you cannot earn repentance by that, and John's answer certainly wouldn't be the answer that we read here that he has given. He would have simply said, listen, I already told you, you cannot earn it. You cannot rely on your heritage. You cannot rely on some religious activity. You came out here to be baptized, but this baptism itself doesn't save. So John has made it clear. So what they are asking is, how is this repentance then reflected in our lives? What's the effect of true repentance? And the answer is so simple that they should have known it. They should have known it, but... But they're like so many today. They are ignorant of what repentance actually looks like because they too, like under the Pharisees, were either under bad teaching or personally ignorant because they've never spent any time actually reading the Bible they say they love or they haven't been taught about it at all. Of course, the Jews that came out under the teachings of the rabbis would have been taught poorly. They would have been taught that giving was born out of a a heart of of desire to, to, to gain honor with the Lord rather than a heart of true repentance. Giving was done as a religious activity. It was done in order to show others that you were righteous. In fact, we even see this happening in Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus Christ over in Luke chapter 18. I'll just show you this quickly. 
Luke chapter 18, you can see this outworking of religious activity when Jesus is telling the parable, or when he's speaking about these certain ones who trusted in themselves in verse 9 and following. They were trusting in themselves, they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Of course, he's talking about the Pharisee. And he gives this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax gatherer. Interestingly enough, all both of those were there during the ministry of John. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax gatherer here, this guy who nobody likes. Because listen, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get, not just of of what's the most. I pay of everything I get. But the tax gatherer, he was standing some distance away, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What did Jesus say? Here they are, two of them standing before God, both talking about themselves before God, both have an understanding about who they are, at least in their own mind's picture, before God. Jesus says, I tell you, this tax gatherer went down to his house justified righteous, rather than the other, the Pharisee who claimed to be so righteous. Why? Because everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Listen, there is no repentance without humility. There's never any kind of repentance without humility not seeing yourself for who you really are. One is driven by pride, personal pride of how righteous they are because of what they did. The other is driven by humility as to how unrighteous he was because of who he was. Go back to John's 3. That's, That's Luke's point. That's John's point in his words. True repentance reflects itself in humility that gives freely. John gives us two examples here in verse 11. One deals with clothing. The other deals with food. Both of those, of course, in that society were very hard commodities to come by. They were necessities, and yet they were difficult on any daily basis to keep without being tattered and to find plenty of food, especially if you followed Jesus. If you were someone who claimed to follow Jesus Christ, you were ostracized by most, if not all. And so John answers the first question this way. Let the man who has two tunics share. Share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise. What? Share. Share. Uh, the original word is metadidomi. It's it, it's a it's a compound word of a preposition and, and, and a and a noun or or a verb, I should say. Meta is is really the word for accompany or or go with, and didomi is give. So go with giving. Uh, have this accompany you. Let your life be accompanied by freely giving to meet the needs of others who don't have. That's what John's saying. Listen, repentance shows itself in an attitude, in a humility that produces the the free giving of what you have. 
He's not just saying simply here that that repentance is seen through the giving of food and the giving of clothing. There's a whole lot of people in our world that give boatloads of that to other people in philanthropy and, and try to make their heart feel good about themselves because they give to others in these ways. That's a great thing. No, what John is saying, uh, this is the entire conduct of true conversion. Truly converted people are just free givers. Not to gain. Not to be patted on the back. Not so they ensure that their refund from the United States government tax department comes the maximum because we can write it there, our charitable giving, and write it off. No, it's an attitude of giving freely simply from a humble heart because you've been given so much from God. The one who has two tunics, two chitones, uh, the undergarment, two jackets, two, two garments that you wear that one would touch the skin, become very like an undershirt. Another one would be the shirt. You have two of those. Give one to somebody else. The person who has several portions of food, share that with those who have none. What's he saying? He's saying simply in a nutshell, beloved, that the very thing that Jesus highlights throughout his entire ministry. What's that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how the Old Testament says it, Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. What shall I, with what shall I come to the Lord? With what shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in a thousand rams? In 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Shall I present the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Oh no. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Give freely. All the blessings that God has given you by way of material blessings, you have them as a gift of God, as a grace of God, and yet we are not to hold them tightly. We're not to hold them tightly. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm holding them tightly? Uh, you know, how do I know if those material things are really being held on to? How much do we cry and complain and whine when God is taking it? How much do we have angst and worry and concern and anxiety in our heart when God is saying, let it go, let it go. You see, beloved, there's nothing new in the message from John. He isn't putting his way of life as a requirement for repentance. That's not what he's telling the people. Hey, live like I live. No, he's saying, look, do what God has always required of you. It's the same law that God has always had in place 
being lived out as God has intended it to be lived out from a truly converted heart by the power of God's redeeming grace. In other words, this isn't indiscriminate giving. That's not what he's talking about. This is giving that relieves real human need. It's not giving that hopes that it will gain some forgiveness from God. No, it's giving because one knows that by faith in Christ we have been forgiven. All of our debts have been washed away. And because we've been loved much, then we love others much. So the first characteristic, the nature of true repentance, saving repentance, is seen when the Christian gives freely. Gives freely. Secondly, secondly, the nature of true repentance is seen when the Christian works honestly. Works honestly. Verses 12 and 13. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect or extract no more than what you have been ordered to. It's interesting in Israel's history and the Roman rulership of which they lived under in the New Testament times, those who were economically wealthy in Rome would buy the the tax rights. They would buy the rights to the customs of a particular province in which they lived or in which they thought would be some kind of money maker. And they would pay the public treasury a certain amount of money in order to buy the custom rights or the, the tax rights for a region. And then they would appoint over that region <coughs> sorry, a, a chief publican. In Latin words, publicani, it's... it's It's a guy who headed up all of the tax gatherers. That's what Zacchaeus was. He was a chief publican. Chief publicans in those provinces would would in turn turn around and, and hire or gather together other tax collectors, those who would go out to the people and collect the taxes and the customs from people in order to gain back the investment. To get a return on the investment. Those who collected the monies from the people were known as publicans or tax gatherers. The original word for tax gatherer is telones. It literally means a farmer of taxes. A farmer of taxes. It's made up of two words. One means to buy and the other is a custom or tax. So from the top down, the one who bought the provincial rights to it was a farmer of taxes who would hire an overseer who was a farmer of taxes who would hire the under ones who would go out and they were farmers of taxes. That's what they were known as. So the publican was a buyer of taxes. That's what he was. That's how they made their money. It was made by extortion. 
That's what it was. Extortion. Take more than you're actually owed. Skim your portion off the top because you needed to pay the chief tax gatherer who would pay the owner of the tax providence or the custom area. And so the price got more and more the lower you went because everybody had to get their cut. And the more you could get, the more you could skim off. And so you can see how the inflated cost would have hit the average person. Some of you are sitting here this morning going, yeah, I feel that pain in my pocket every day. And you can see how these people would have despised or they would have been despised by the Jews. Especially those who were Jews themselves working for the Romans. They were considered traitors in Israel because they were helping the Roman oppressors. So to have a publican in the family would have been a public disgrace. They would have been denied by the family. And as a publican, you couldn't even give in the temple if you were a Jew. You couldn't bring your monies to the temple to give because your money was seen to be gotten illegally. So you were, you were like working for the mafia. So all of that for the publican only hardened the heart of people toward them, and yet here are some who had come to be baptized. That ought to amaze us and shock us, and yet it shouldn't shock us knowing the power of the gospel. And the implication here is that they actually had truly believed, and they are asking the same question as others. Right? They had gotten past the first launch of the volley of, of shots over them by John's message in verse 7. They, they now had realized, man, I, I know I was a viper. I know I needed to repent. I've repented. So how's this going to look in my life? And they asked the same question. What is it we are to do? What shall we do? John says to the tax gatherer, be honest in the execution of your job. Work honestly. Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Notice, interestingly enough, that he does not say that you should give up your job as proof of your repentance. He doesn't say that. You would think he might say that. I mean, these were hated guys. These were not nice people. I mean, they were extortioners by way of view and oftentimes by way of how they went about their job. And yet here is John saying, look, just do your job honestly. Well, in many ways that meant that they weren't going to make any money because to do honestly, they would be taking what the other guy above them asked them to take, which meant they made nothing because that's what the guy wanted for himself. You know what? It's the same that Jesus would say. Jesus never says to anyone, listen, give up your job as proof of your repentance. What's Jesus say? Go and sin no more. Oftentimes, sinning no more means I got to leave my job. Because maybe my job just is a sinful job. And that's the point, isn't it? It's not about giving up our jobs. It's actually about being honest at our jobs. 
A heart of true repentance is seen working honestly. For the tax collector, that was never extract more than you're assigned to extract. By the way, in the original language, that's a negative command. This is a command sentence here, but it's in the negative sense. And and I only bring that up just simply to say this, that when a command is stated in the negative in the original language, it means stop doing what you're doing. In other words, you're already doing that, so stop that. It's not you have to do more in this area. You've got to stop doing what you're already doing. In other words, the practice of extracting more was so fixed in the work of a tax gatherer that for someone to stop showed true and real repentance. It showed a change of heart and quite potentially would have, as I said, cost them their job. That's simply to say that a repentant heart is an honest heart. A repentant heart is an honest heart. It's a heart that's more concerned with what God thinks than with what man thinks. So it's honest. Honest in its dealing with others. Honest for God's sake. Isaiah 33 Isaiah 33, verse 14, says this, beginning middle of the verse, who, who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who re- rejects unjust gain and shakes hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He who he will dwell on the heights with his, his refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. What's Isaiah's point? Who can escape the judgment of God? Who's the one who can actually say, I can stand Not because of me, but because of what God's done. The one who can stand that, the one who can live with continual burning is the one who's righteous. The one who walks and speaks with sincerity, who rejects unjust gain. Doesn't live by bribery. Doesn't seek out bloodshed. Doesn't allow himself to be drained. And looking upon the things that are evil... It's that person who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the impregnable rock, whose bread will be given to him, and whose water will be sure. Jesus said, come to me all who are thirsty and I will give you drink, right? Jesus Christ is the end of all of that. So it's faith, faith that produces repentance. Faith in what God has said. Faith in Jesus Christ. And true repentance always bears fruit in the life of the repentant. John says here, first, freely giving. You give freely. And secondly, you work honestly. Third, he says, the nature of true repentance is seen in living contently. Living contently. 
Notice what he says in verse 14. And some of the soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? Okay, we heard you talk to the people in general, and we could certainly think about that in our own life. We heard you talk to these disgraced tax gatherers, but in a specific sense, that doesn't account to us. So what do we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. It's interesting in the grammar, there's some debate as to what kind of soldiers he's talking about here. He's certainly not talking about all the soldiers, because certainly all of them, this isn't a company that talks about just soldiers in general, and all of them, they're asking on behalf of all soldiers. No, he's talking about those who had come, those who had truly had a heart change. So this is some of them who were soldiers, but but we're not even sure by the grammar and the historical context as to whether these were Roman soldiers or whether these were mercenaries. Some mercenaries were very prevalent in those days. They were individual people who hired themselves out as soldiers. But either way you look at it, I don't really think that changes the point. Whether they are some of the soldiers in the Roman army, whether these are some of Pilate's soldiers, because this is the region they're in, or whether these are civilian mercenaries, it really makes no difference. The question is, what does repentance look like in the life of every person? In their context of life. Is John going to say to these men in the context of their military life, to, to leave your military service because you now believe unto salvation? Is that what he's going to say? Certainly, the text doesn't teach that. What does the text imply? What does it imply? Well, it implies this, that in the execution of your duty... In the execution of your duty within the employment in which you have, you are now to avoid living like the unsaved. You're not to live like the unsaved soldier. Notice, notice here in verse 14, John gives them three, three commands. The first two are negative commands, which we know what that means. Stop doing this already. And the third is a positive command. This is what you are to be doing. This is to be the constant course of action in your life. So the first two are to be completely put aside, right? Like Paul's words in Galatians, put aside the things of the flesh, put on the things of the Spirit, right? So this is the idea. This is to be the norm of life. Put off these two, put on this. This is the norm. So, First, do not take money from anyone by force. Why does John say that? Because that's the norm. That's what would take place. That's what soldiers did. It's just like the tax gatherers, just another form of extortion from the people. But it was extortion by terror. Extortion by fear. Extortion by threatening bodily harm. Even more so than the tax gatherer, these were like Mafia tactics. You don't give us something, we're going to break your kneecaps. We're going to do something to your family. In fact, the word take here is the, the word in the original language for shake violently. 
It's almost like grabbing some of you by the shirt and saying, give me what I, I told you to get me. That's what he's talking about. That was the norm. Terrifying the people, threatening them with bodily harm. They had the power. They were the soldiers. They had the weaponry. They had the guns. They had the means of blackmail. Ways of extracting from other people who didn't have those means, and they used it at will. So this is why John says, don't, don't take from anyone by force or accuse falsely. That was the normal tactic. Why? Because that was easy. It was easy to extort that way. Again, I turn to the Old Testament just to show you this. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Of course, we know the passage well. We'll come back to this even tonight as we look at Galatians. But Exodus chapter 20, Then the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the likeness of what is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day the Sabbath of, is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and it shall, you shall not do any work, you and your son, your daughter, your male, your female servant, cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Wonder how often we have profaned that in our own life. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which your Lord God gives you. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's all John's saying. John's saying, listen, the Lord your God has not changed. Repentance is doing what God has commanded. God commands, don't bear false witness. You don't accuse someone else. That's a false witness. Exodus 23.1, you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be, be a malicious witness. This is the character quality of a believer. They do not bear false witnesses. They tell the truth. They speak the truth in love even if sometimes that means that the truth separates. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. And older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. Not malicious gossips. 
you find it interesting to, to be an accuser of others is equated with gossiping and meddling? Whereby gossiping and meddling is not the true heart of a repentant person? Go back to Luke chapter 3. Luke says in verse 14, don't take money by violence, don't accuse others falsely, and third, be content with your wages. Be content. Why? Because the unrepentant heart is a dissatisfied heart. It's dissatisfied. And a dissatisfied heart seeks satisfaction at the cost of others. And that's John's point. Repentance is a serious matter. Not a flippant word. It's not a, hey, I'm sorry and moving on. Repentance is a serious matter, and therefore true repentance results in the change of how a person lives. And each situation, each circumstance in which we live, each time that we deal with one another and deal with the world around us and deal with life, each one of those situations in life brings up a unique temptation for sin to come and to rear its ugly head and, to, and for us to say, okay, am I going to go this way or am I going to go this way? And repentance will show growth in avoiding sin. That's what John wants the people to know. Habitually failing is proof of no genuine repentance. You notice I did not say falling is proof of no repentance. Why? Because we all fall, don't we? Even Christians, we fall. None of us will practice perfection this side of heaven. None of us will be at the place where we're no longer needing any kind of daily confession and daily repentance whereby God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We strive and we exercise our faith and we walk by faith. We trust what God says and therefore we live according to what God says and we continually confess and we turn, like the Old Testament says, in the direction of righteous living. That's what we do. Repentance is not an activity that just simply gets us into the place of salvation. It is a life of sanctification. We repent every day. We ought to be. Why? Because every day we're sinning. That doesn't mean that every day we're being saved in some new salvation. No, we are saved once and for all in Christ. But sanctification is a process by which God is changing us into the likeness of His Son. Well, it is especially difficult for us as sinners to go against the norm. Difficult. It's difficult for us in our jobs and in our families. Going against the norm brings ridicule, brings ostracization from others who are not saved. And that's what makes all of those things and all of those outworkings of life a good litmus test for true repentance. Because there's a personal cost to it. It's a personal cost. If we're going to follow Jesus Christ, if we're going to believe in Jesus Christ and say, Lord, save me from myself, then there will be a personal cost. 
So this is an accurate evaluation of Christian fruit. Do we give freely? Do we give freely or are we continually pushing for more and holding it tightly? What about working? Do we work honestly? Do we work in such a way where we are continually cutting corners and and taking advantage of others in the process? Or are we working honestly? Doing exactly what we've been asked to do, all for the glory of God. Even if that means we miss out. Even if that means it costs us. And therefore, in the end, do we live contently? We live contently, or, or do we find in our heart that we are discontent with life? And because we're discontent with life, we step on others just to get higher than them because they're in our way. John says, listen, go and show the fruit of repentance. Well, those who have genuinely repented, give freely, work honestly, and they live contently. It's these people who live knowing that they are forgiven. It's those people that know they are guilt-free before God, and their countenance before others is an invitation. Because no matter what the circumstances hold, they have a countenance that knows they are secure in Christ, and that countenance is an invitation for others around them that God is, is salvation. But in Jesus Christ, in Him alone, there is salvation and you can live for Christ right here and right now. That's a lot to swallow. A lot to swallow. Thank God for His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are unfit in our humanness to be in your presence. We could not endure your wrath by for one moment. You chose to unleash it upon us. All who sit here saved are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We know all that truth because of the Scriptures alone. Your Word is true. It is right. It is declarative. It is sharp. Cuts when it goes in and cuts when it comes out. And surely the thoughts and intentions of our heart even this day have been challenged. But we know that in Christ there is security, there is hope, there is life. And one day there will be a sinless perfection. We long for that day. We pray that you would come quickly. And yet until that day, may we by the power of your Spirit live according to what your word has taught us, walking by faith, trusting in you, that others might know our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
All God's people said, Amen.